DC Cyber Week, presented by CyberScoop, is the largest gathering of the cyber community for a week of learning, collaborating, and networking. Register now for DC Cyber Week, running from October 21st to 25th, to gain access to interactive sessions hosted by the most prominent players in the cyber community. The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, so this is a critical time to come together and be a part of the conversation, sharpen your skills, expand your professional network, and get ahead of the game. To register, visit dccyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for August 16th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. It's been a quieter week as the cybersecurity world recovers from Hacker Summer Camp, but we've got some updates, particularly from the Capital One case. In our interview, we talked to Jonathan Kutch from Threat Quotient about the cybersecurity issues surrounding the upcoming census. Another big business is ready to IPO. We will break it down in the business section, but first let's talk about everything else that happened in the InfoSec world. It looks like Capital One was not the only business impacted by Paige Thompson. According to federal court filings made public Wednesday, the alleged Capital One hacker may have siphoned data from more than 30 other companies. The revelation was part of the evidence used to argue that Thompson must be detained before trial or else pose a danger to the community and risk of skipping out on further court dates. The government also said that Thompson has told law enforcement that she neither sold nor otherwise shared any of the data that she stole from Capital One or any other potential victim. Greg, give us details. So this was part of a a court order that made sure that she doesn't get bail, that she's held before the actual trial. And it was uh, really interesting in that the government seems to be saying that they, they towed the line here because what they said was that They found terabytes of additional data Thompson took from more than 30 companies, educational institutions, and other entities. However, they're not entirely sure that Thompson breached those entities to take that data. Because in the paperwork that the government filed, they said, we will file additional charges if we find that she has breached these other companies. They don't have any evidence of that yet. There are no additional charges uh, as of the time of this recording. However, there has been some reporting right after the Capital One breach that maybe Ford was impacted, maybe Vodafone was impacted, Michigan State University might have been impacted. So there are starting to be little crumbs of uh, knowledge and, and data floating out there that says that maybe Capital One wasn't the only one affected by this. Is it possible that it was a copycat or is the timing in such that if it happened, it's got to be her? Um, there aren't any details in the filing that that say whether it is a copycat or not. All it does say is that the government is investigating and they expect it to take months in order to figure out who exactly was impacted beyond Capital One. So maybe, I mean, we'll, we'll see what the government sort of um, overturns there in their forensic investigation. But also we had talked about how there seemed to be uh, uh, some mental illness and some mental problems there. And the government went into uh, some more detail on that. And it looked like there was some pretty bad uh, mental health problems there. Um, 
another reason the government was asking for Thompson to be held is due to what they call a long history of threatening behavior that included repeated threats to kill others, kill herself, and to commit suicide by cop. And that last part was basically from an incident that happened in March where she threatened her roommates by saying that she was going to retrieve a fake gun, call police to residents, and hope police would shoot her after mistaking the fake gun for a real one. Oh, so, God. yeah, it, that's the, it, obviously behavior that is deeply rooted in some mental illness. And I, yeah, I for think sure. also we had talked about how there was uh, a heavy police presence for when they actually arrested Thompson. And it turns out there was a, a big reason for that. Uh, the roommate of Thompson was found to have, and I, I, I will just list, 14 firearms, including assault rifles, a sniper rifle, multiple handguns, two bump stocks, two flare launchers, and multiple high-capacity magazines. So this was not your script kitty living in their mom's basement. Like this was a a, a very, um, I don't want to say disturbed. I'm not sure that that's the right word. Um, just it, it, it's very clear this was a, a, a very, very dark situation going on uh, uh, with the alleged person that hacked Capital One here. Wow. I'm not sure that the, just by virtue of having the guns that qualifies, but certainly it does um, definitely needs the response of more police presence for an arrest. Yeah. Uh, it, it was, this was, yeah, it, it, it was a, a, a dangerous situation all around. It seems like. So yeah, the, the government, um, has said, look, we, we need this person in jail because she presents right. a danger. And if there's no danger, there's a flight risk. Like if we let her go, there's a good chance that she's going to just flee and never show up for court again. So um, you can read the entire thing on CyberScoop. We have the the documents, but yeah, uh, very, very clear that this this is not uh, really uh, open and shut. There may be some other pretty big companies affected here. So a federal judge ruled in a lawsuit Thursday morning that Georgia must completely phase out its current inventory of paperless voting machines before the state's 2020 presidential primary, but stopped short of ordering the state to revert to hand-marked paper ballots during this year's local elections as the case's plaintiffs had requested. Judge Amy Tautenberg was sympathetic to the plaintiffs, led by the Coalition for Good Governments, writing that a reasonably threatened wound to the integrity of a state's election system pierces citizens' confidence. Security researchers long have warned that paperless voting machines are vulnerable to outside intrusion and that they do not allow for votes to be audited in the event something goes wrong. Jen, do you see this as a shift in the thinking on the state level? I mean, it must be. You know, and I wonder where other states are going with this and if we're going to see just in general a big shift away um, from paperless completely. Yeah. You know, it, this is coupled with, there's been some noise in Philadelphia that, um, ES has been landing some contracts for new voting machines. And it looks like there was some shadiness there going on as well. And those contracts have been blown up and that on top of the voting village, again, doing its thing, in Las Vegas, I think that all of the the yelling and the warnings about this are finally starting to take root because I'm starting to see a lot more knowledge and a lot more reasoned thinking when it comes to 
using paper ballots and using risk limiting audits inside you know state level election officials. So I I, I think that this uh, lawsuit is a sign of some you know changing tides when it comes to election security. So the U.S. government is experimenting with a secure portal for anonymously reporting software vulnerabilities to encourage closer collaboration with ethical hackers. Officials announced at DEF CON on Friday. The Department of Homeland Security already accepts thousands of vulnerability reports every year, but now it is trying to tap further into the cybersecurity community for that information by using SecureDrop, the open source software that some news organizations rely on for anonymous tips. The plan is for DEF CON to host the servers for the vulnerability reporting, acting as a bridge between hackers and the government. Greg, I heard that not everyone thinks this is a good idea. Yeah, um, I think the reason that people don't think it's a good idea, not that there's anything wrong with SecureDrop. SecureDrop you know, is trusted by uh, a lot of big newsrooms for uh, anonymous secure tips. But the the chatter that I've been hearing is that, look, the government, especially like with DHS and with CERT, has been doing this for a while in terms of like getting vulnerability reports. Why is it that they're only trying to get secure comms set up now? And they also, they, they have different ways to get threat intelligence into their systems already. So what really are we doing here? Like it's from the standpoint of, is this overkill? Like why does the government need secure drop overall to, to get vulnerability um, reports? It doesn't make sense from people that I've talked to about it, which to me, I say personally, like what's the big deal? It's just one more channel. Like you're the federal government. There's always good, there should always be multiple ways to contact you. Why couldn't this be another one? Well, maybe they just think people are afraid to report what they find on existing channels uh, and people feel more anonymous on this one. Yeah, I guess. But at the same time, wouldn't you have that worry? If you were truly worried about that, wouldn't you think that you'd had that worry no matter what outlet you choose to contact the U.S. government? I feel like it's just it's the government reputation. It's not necessarily the technological reputation, you know. Well, I imagine they're trying to sort of convey that they are um, less likely to prosecute if you're you know, found to be hacking into their system and and then pointing stuff out. Yeah, well, I, I don't necessarily think it's it's hacking into government systems. I just think this is threat intelligence no matter where it comes from and just kind of giving, yeah. kind of giving the government a heads up. I do, I do think now that I, I, I think about it, the, the, the fact that DEF CON is going to host the servers, I think that's going to allay some fears, but yeah, uh, uh, overall, I, I, I think this is, uh, I mean, I, I don't see the, the negative in this as long as the legal and the, the technical, uh, ramifications are taken care of. Well, what's, what's one more channel? It can only help. But are you thinking about this from the other angle as well, that maybe this is better PR for DEF CON? You know, certainly they get, a, you know, a little bit of a bad rap, right? Where it's not all ethical hacking and this helps them. Um, oh, totally. Give the, the ethical hopping PR spin. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that you're you're totally right. And hey, if that's what they want to do, then then all the more power to them, I guess. But I think that you're right. I, I think that it is a, a a good PR move for them. And they probably thought that themselves. And 
that's why they decided to do it. it right. It's a good way to curry favor with the government. I 1000% uh, agree with you that DEF CON is, that's the reason they're involved to, in order to appease both the security community and the federal government. Yeah. So despite international media attention and a series of high-profile arrests, some of the world's most prolific cyber criminals only seem to be accelerating their hacking sprees. Financially motivated hacking groups like Fin7, Cobalt Group, and the Contact Crew remain active, staying busy well into this year according to Accenture Security's 2019 Threatscape report. The cybercrime syndicates, which have haunted financial and retail companies since at least 2016, have spent the first half of 2019 updating their malicious software tools and expanding their reach. This comes despite the fact that companies are writing six-figure checks in the hopes that cybersecurity products will keep criminals out of the company coffers. Jen, I believe you and I both have said we were probably going to see these groups resurface. I mean, absolutely. If you're making money doing something, you're going to continue to make money doing it. Um, and if if new cybersecurity products coming on the market prevent you from doing it, you'll figure out the workarounds. Right. And even though that these guys have been arrested, the supposed ringleaders of Fin7 have been detained and are, are looking to be extradited if they haven't been extradited already. Um, it, you know, it, it seems like there was some effort put in to try to crush these guys from operating, and it's clear that that did not work. So, yeah, groups like Fin7, Cobalt Group, they're all going to keep doing what they're doing. I'm not surprised that they haven't seemed to go away at all. I will say, however, and we talked about this within our newsroom earlier this week, Contact crew just seems like the weakest name for a cybercrime syndicate ever. Like it sounds like a, a, a like a, a PBS show for kids almost. Like get a better name, guys. I mean, the other names aren't that good either. But I, you know, I think it's like everything, right? Like we're all we all think we're really good at our jobs, but at the end of the day, we could be replaced the next day, and this goes for crime syndicates too. Yeah, I guess just we're we're all just cogs in in the in in the system. I guess. I guess so. So U.S. Cyber Command has uploaded malicious software samples to Virus Total again, and this time they're associated with campaigns from Lazarus Group, an advanced persistent threat group linked with North Korea, two cybersecurity firms, Semantic and CrowdStrike. The group is especially known for its financial motivations, and these malware samples seem to indicate that they continue to be after the money. The release marks the second time in as many months Cyber Command added malware details to the security repository as part of an information sharing effort with the private sector. Greg, what more do we know about the malware? So it looks like this malware is related to a campaign known as Electric Fish. And what Electric Fish is, it's a, it's, um, a, a tunneling tool used by North Korean hackers and it allows an attacker to use uh, a victim's network as a hop point and tunnel traffic basically a- as a masking agent almost, um, just hides malicious traffic. Um, a-, a lot of companies have been aware of this for a while. Uh, we talked to CrowdStrike, Symantec, FireEye, uh, Kaspersky, um, and, it- and they all said that this was – North Korea, and they've been tracking this since last year, and this group seems to be focused on stealing money and using destructive malware as well. So Lazarus Lazarus Group, again, another 
cyber criminal, nation state cyber criminal syndicate, still active, still doing its thing. And Cyber Command is still doing its thing with, you know, putting out these malware alerts in order to try to, you know, educate the the greater cybersecurity world and sort of name and shame these groups into saying, you guys aren't that slick. We see what you're doing and we're going to put you on blast publicly. Who comes up with these names? Because Electric Fish... For a, someone that's tunneling, it should be like electric mole. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that. That's it's actually you know fascinating to to think about how the military comes up with the names for their projects and and stuff like this. Like that's actually a paid job, and like it's just a fascinating thing to to think about. Like what goes through these people's minds when they name some of this stuff? But um, when it's not the government, it's um, you know, it's it's the the researchers just pulling random stuff right. out of the code that that they're taking. So um we start a consulting business to um name all um threats going forward. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I feel like CrowdStrike right now has the the most the, the wildest names. They get really, really intense with it. So we'd have to up up the intensity in order to to show value there. <laughs> I have no doubt you could do that. So flush with cash and buzzing on the confidence that comes with sitting near the top of an emerging market during a strong economy, a handful of cybersecurity giants are lining up for a race where the winner could emerge as the nascent industry's first dominant player. Major cybersecurity companies spent the first half of 2019 exploring business deals meant to complement their core product offering, which is device security. The entire industry has been on the action, though, with more than 80 mergers or acquisitions in the first half of this year, totaling more than $22 billion. It's the result of that strong economy and high valuations for security vendors that make it easier to sell equity, according to investors and analysts who spoke with CyberScoop. It's also proof that the security market is maturing and demonstrates how established companies are seeking to fill out their portfolio to offer a unified security service to Fortune 500 CISOs who are tired of stitching together hundreds of security products to protect their business. Jen, I mean, this seems like from, you know, from the startup phase all the way up to IPO, this has always been the goal, right? Rush out and be the first company that offers an entirely holistic product. And that way, every company, large or small, medium-sized, whatever, has to come to you to get what they need from a cybersecurity standpoint. I mean, absolutely. And it really was the only way this market could go with so many companies um, raising venture capital, um, so many companies raising a lot of venture capital and just not seeing um, revenue numbers that that really validated the next valuation they're going to have to get. I mean, they had to, um, you know, quickly be on the market to get acquired, um, to roll themselves up into a bigger company so that a, a, a more comprehensive solution could be given. Um, you know, I think we'll see just more of that as the, the year goes by. Yeah. You know, it was an interesting metaphor that an analyst gave us for the story in basically saying that everybody out there right now has sold like the headlights or the Mm -hmm. spark plugs or the transmission or, you know, the fuel or, or some part. And nobody has really taken the lead into saying, hey, we're going to put this all together and we're going to sell you just the total car. And that's basically what everybody is driving toward. Just the 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 entire suite of products under one roof and we looked at 
you know, CrowdStrike, we looked at Palo Alto, we looked at Cisco, like these are all the companies that are at the forefront and are kind of at the lead to getting to this point where they are the dominant player. But it's clear that everybody's trying to rush to do this. And on the second tier level, I mean, we've seen the consolidation. If they're not going to be able to get to the front of the pack, they're going to hope somebody from the front of the pack chooses them, yeah, buys them up. Yeah, chooses them, buys them up, and everybody can get their payday that way. So um, it, it's you know really interesting from the standpoint of how much these dominant players are trying to rush to the front, and that's really driving all of the money within the industry. Well, and I think by by sort of doing this, I think we're going to see better security for that matter, just because there's not going to be something that's forgotten, and then these bigger companies will be able to just make sure they're really giving that whole solution. Um, so I think it's only a good thing. Um, you know, but that said, if you look at all the companies out in the landscape, we still don't have um, all the tools that we need, even if you look at everything that's out there, um, to solve, to protect um, everything. So we're going to see more and more startups as time goes on. Anyway, And speaking of startups that have gone on to the level of IPOs, as we were preparing for today's show, internet services company Cloudflare filed to go public a long-anticipated move that comes amid ongoing controversy surrounding the firm's reluctance to drop websites that allow hate speech. The San Francisco-based company on Thursday filed its S-1 document with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the first step in the process that will result in shares trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol net, just net, N-E-T. It had 74,873 paying customers in the first half of this year, reporting a $36.8 million net loss on $129.2 million in revenue. According to the filing, revenue was up 48% from the first half of 2018. Cloudflare also has become well-known for its willingness to host websites like 8chan, an online forum where at least three mass shootings this year have been announced before they occurred. Cloudflare removed 8chan following the El Paso shooting where a lone gunman killed 22 people and injured 24 others, much like it terminated the Daily Stormer in 2017 after the white supremacist website celebrated the murder of an anti-fascist protester in Charlottesville, Mm -hmm. Virginia. So... I think this is the first IPO that says, yeah, these renegade sites might cause uh, investors to stay away. Not not the best thing to put in an IPO. Yeah, you know, but it, I'm not sure that makes investors stay away. I mean, I, I just don't know that, that we're going to really see um, that much of a difference because of it. If anything, um, the company will be in the news more. Uh, bringing awareness that the stock is available for purchase. And so we might actually see the stock price go up. Right. I, I think that, you know, look, they, they took the site down and I think that you would, were the God forbid that something like this happens again on some other cesspool website that manages to use Cloudflare. Cloudflare is just going to boot them off. Like they're not going to mess around now. Obviously they're going to be a public company. And if they are linked to this stuff, the market's going to react and they're going to have to take action with that reaction. So uh, I'm with you there. The fact that the fact that they put it in the S1, I think goes to show that they're willing, they're going to take action once they go public and it's just not going to be that much of a thing. They'll boot, they'll, they'll boot everybody off. That is, you know, being terrible. That's that. That'll be done. 
and they'll keep providing, you know, the protections that they have been known to protect. And they have a honestly a, a very, very good product um, when it comes to uh, DDoS protection. So really, really interesting just that they even had to include that. Yeah, that's true. Okay, uh, now to our interview with Jonathan Cooch uh, from Threat Quotient. We had a nice talk with him out in Vegas talking about threat intel and uh, basically how that threat intel is going to help protect the 2020 census. Check it out. All right, joining us now is Jonathan Cooch, SVP of Strategy for Threat Quotient. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Share a little bit about your background, specifically within the threat intelligence space. So uh, I've been doing threat intelligence actually for, for quite a while, even before it was really called threat intelligence. Uh, I started out my career back in the 90s with the Air Force uh, and, and working at the NSA. Uh, I've spent really the first decade of my career more on the offensive side, um, learning about you know how people go about attacking networks because I was doing part of it myself. Okay. Uh, and then in 2006, uh, I was a co-founder of iSight Partners, uh, which specialized in commercial cyber threat intelligence. Okay. And the general concept there was the government was doing a really good job of figuring out what the bad guys were doing and you know how to protect themselves against it and, and to learn from that. Uh, but the commercial uh, world really didn't have anything similar to, to be able to work from. They really just had to rely on what little information the government was pushing out at, at the time. And so we started up iSight to go out there and get tentacles around the world to figure out, you know, what are the bad guys doing and how can we package that information in a way that commercial organizations and government organizations can use it to better protect themselves. Uh, and so I've really been focused in on what is commonly known now as CTI, cyber threat intelligence, uh, for the commercial space, you know, primarily since 2006. Uh, but I've dabbled in a little bit of areas of it on the government side ever since my career started. So tell us what you think are some of the most pressing issues facing um, government organizations in regards to cyber threats. Uh, you know, right now, I think it, it's a, there's been a real uptick in, in nation-state activity. Um, there, there have been a lot of reports out. I, I think uh, FireEye just came out with a, a report on a new group, APT41, that's uh, a Chinese nation-state um, organization that's doing cybercrime as well as cy- cyber espionage uh, activities. And that's kind of a, a new trend that uh, I think we'll start seeing more and more where uh, different organizations are going to be leaping into the commercial world and cybercrime world. Uh, to see, you know, how they can get funding and how they can disrupt networks and, you know, financial institutions and personal information and those kinds of things. Um, but, you know, government organizations suffer from, from all of that. I mean, you have a lot of organizations that uh, Department of Agriculture actually uh, pays 60% of the government paychecks. Uh, they're a bank. You know, whether they, they realize it and want to admit it or not, uh, they are. And so they have to operate you know, as a bank. Uh, same with uh, housing and urban development. You know, they, contain a, they have a lot of money that they're pushing out to different organizations and, and groups. And so the, the kinds of threats they're facing are the same threats that commercial organizations are, are facing. And so the government needs to be agile enough uh, to be able to face them and protect themselves against those. So not only is the government a bank, it's also a big... Uh, data collection agency and one of the biggest uh, data collection um, one of the biggest data collection actions is going to take place with the 2020 census uh, coming up this is supposed to be moving online for the first time and we've seen already some of like the the IT headaches 
that have gone on to you know moving this forward and making sure that it launches on time but you know all that data is going to need to be protected so what unique risks does this change and 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 the the move to move everything more online and more mobile what are the risks that that um presents yeah i mean this is one of those very typical usability versus security kind of kind of arguments uh to where i we have a system that i believe personally was developed more for usability you know how can the census takers more easily get that information how can they collect it aggregate it how can it be put in a database uh, all, all the key thing I think we have to remember is the fact that this information drives much of the budget for Congress. There's 2,500 different organizations that get funded by Congress based on census data. So it is very key that, that data, the data integrity of that information uh, r- remains solid, that you know, we can believe in it, we can trust in it, uh, because we're making decisions on it. And you know, both policy decisions as well as financial decisions from a budget perspective. Uh, and so the, the approach that I've seen so far for the government taking towards this is a lot of security through obscurity. Uh, as long as we don't talk about it, as long as we don't put it out there, you know, we, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna develop this secure network, and it'll be secure because nobody will know anything about it. Uh, and we saw, you know, in, in election systems, that doesn't really work that well. Right. You know, we, we need to put the information out there and and let people poke holes in it, almost like an open source kind kind of tool. Uh, you know, let let people beat up on it for a while before we we put it out there and, and allow people to to make changes to it because. Right now, we're in the unfortunate situation where the only people that are going to know the vulnerabilities associated with it are going to be the people that either developed it or those attackers that have found some way into it that nobody else knows about. Uh, and so, you know, how are we monitoring it? How are we detecting and preventing attacks coming into it? None of that information is known. It's not public public information. Uh, the government has said that they're working with you know different government contractors to to secure it, but. You know what kind of contractors uh, have the right the same experience as uh, as a Facebook as other social right. media organizations mm-hmm. that have their software sitting out there in the, in the open uh, and have experience. Yeah, it seems like such a unique security issue because not only are you talking about having to safeguard databases, a lot of this is going to be done through collection on mobile devices. Yeah. So you're you're basically taking like this very temporary enterprise but has the ability to collect all this data and it, it just the, the, the vulnerabilities are basically everything that we talk about like on the black hat floor. You're talking yeah. about data integrity. <laughs> you're talking about data protection. You're talking about mobile protection. And you, you, everything there needs to be encrypted. It really seems like it is just ripe. Uh, it's a very, very ripe target. Yeah, I mean, you, you go down to the conference center and attend any one of the mobile talks and all of them are about you know uh, insecurity, security with mobile devices, and, and some of the problems that that still exist there. Uh, and you apply that against you know a custom app that'll be developed running on you know m- what my guess would be is they're going to take uh, a custom version of the OS for whether they go with Android or, or iOS, but um, they're going to you know most likely have a, have a custom version of that. It's going to communicate up. Is it communicating over, over a VPN? What kind of security and credentials are, are there? You know, there's encryption of data at rest, encryption of data in transit, all those typical security principles um, that, that need to be followed that I, I just have no idea. And so uh, I also get worried when you're talking about mobile devices, uh, you know, how are those mobile devices connecting up 
to be able to send send their data back? Are they going through traditional ISPs? Are they going through uh, mobile access points? Or you know, how is that data being being transmitted from a telecommunications standpoint? Uh, and what's the ability for a third party to do a man in the middle attack to to sit there and you know have my portable cell cell tower which always seem to pop up at Black Hat every, every year. It's <laughs> right? uh, ra- rather interesting. So, um, yeah, so speaking of um, that, right, so should I not be filling out the, filling out the census? Am no. I at risk here? And, and what should the government be doing to protect me? Yeah, I mean, it, it is to a large degree a double-edged sword uh, in, in the sense that we need and, and want the census data to be as accurate as possible. We need people to be filling out the, the census data because budgets are based on that. Uh, and so uh, we need that to have that information uh, available. But at the same time, you know, I, I not only need you know uh, all of the uh, people out there to participate in the census, but we need the government to properly manage and maintain that, that right. information in, in a secure way. Uh, so you know, my big thing that I've been talking about is just to have everybody participate, you know, as much as possible, ju- just as usual, but at the same time, have the government go about a little more due diligence with uh, the systems that they're developing to, to have some more of the community take a look at it and, and bring in the experts. I mean, I'm in the back of my mind, I'm kind of hoping that they're bringing in a, a Google or, or somebody that, you know, has a lot of experience with external facing systems uh, at scale. Uh, and they're having someone t- take a look at this on the, on the commercial side, but I, I haven't seen anything around it. So switching gears, I know you spend a lot of time talking about the convergence of IT and OT technology and the threat intel that goes into that. So I would love to hear, you know, what are you hearing from, you know, operational technology perspectives when it comes to oil and gas plants and manufacturing plants and more and more of the industrial control space and how they are protecting themselves against threats? Yeah, definitely. I I have seen a lot of targeting, a lot more targeting going on, and there's a lot more discussions around OT networks. It it used to be, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the only people attacking OT networks were governments. You know, okay. You, you just didn't want to mess with it. You know, you didn't want to go in and accidentally take down the power grid for, for somebody. And uh, so there were researchers that were taking a look into it, and then governments were, were starting to take a look at look at it. But as of late, you're seeing more and more, um, you know, commercial attackers, if you will, even on the cybercrime side. You know, you see a lot more malware that's targeted towards the OT networks that, that's out there in, in the public domain. And so. As these uh, attacks have been, you know, rising in, in popularity, and as there's getting more press, uh, I think you know security is finally starting to, to kick in on, on the OT side. Uh, it's always been the kind of culture within uh, OT networks, with energy, oil and gas, manufacturing, that to just kind of don't touch it. You know, if we touch it, it might break, uh, and we don't want things to break because that's how we make our money. Uh, but now I think there's there's an awareness that, that is growing, that is driving a lot of the vendors that are providing uh, the different uh, technologies for OT networks, as well as uh, the companies that are running and managing the, these OT networks to actually provide a layer of security there, to actually get in the monitor and detection and prevention technologies that regular IT networks have, uh, have in place. There's still a long way to go, but I truly believe in the next you know few years you're going to be hearing more and more about about these attacks, especially with you know a lot of the political situations when you're dealing with the Middle East, where a lot of oil and gas companies right. uh, reside and, and everything going on there, both politically and, and militarily. Um, 
you, you, we're going to see so much more of that going on, especially at the at the nation state level. But it's going to affect other organizations as they're as they're figuring out how to operate. And as I travel around the world, I just get more and more questions from companies around, you know, all right, you you know, I, I'm a security vendor. I have technology to help provide security. People still apply that primarily to IT networks, uh, but I am consistently asked, all right, how would you apply your technology to OT networks? And when we start going down that path, I typically run into the, all right, but we can't do that. You can't actually have another layer of security on, on this. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> I mean, when you're talking about PLCs and, and HMIs, it's not, it can't be the same as IT where it's just, oh, I'm going to go buy yep. the equivalent of an antivirus and bolt it on there and everything's going to be fine. So yep. uh, my next question is, is who do you think the, the responsibility falls on? Is it the equipment manufacturers or is the actual companies that are putting this on their systems? Like, well, where does the responsibility lie to protect, I, I this would, infra- or the, you know, protect this infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, I, I would put it on both of them, definitely. I also think it's on standards boards. Um, you know, they're, they're, it took years to have organizations uh, finally set up standards where, you know, you can't have remote maintenance ports open to Telnet. Okay. You know, the, let's let's move to something a little more secure. Uh, right now, RDP, Remote Desktop Protocol, that is the easiest way to get into an OT network. There you go, telling everybody. Luke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, and, and so, but they're still out there. You know, people, the, the standards boards haven't come out yet to be able to say, listen, there are standard best practices. And yes, there are different things, you know, PLCs and, and a lot of those devices. OT networks rely on consistency. You know, right. A, B, C, D. That has to happen every single time. Those are the commands going down the wire. You can't have anything stop that. If something stops that, then bad things happen. Right. And so that that is where a lot of the fear and concern around putting a lot of the traditional security technologies on, on these networks come from uh, is just the very predictive nature, predictable nature uh, of these OT, OT networks and the technologies that are on there. But if the manufacturers themselves can can update their technology, but really... A lot of it is the wrapper that goes around it, the networks that these these technologies are, are sitting on. You know, I'm not as concerned with the uh, security of PLCs as I am with you know the access to the networks that you can get through RDP. The you know how are they maintaining them? Normally, there are tie-ins. There's some kind of access point from the right. IT network into the OT network to right. manage it and maintain it. You know, how are we protecting those access points? Do we know all of the access points? Invariably, from my time in the in the military when I did red teaming with with the Air Force, uh, along with you know modern day when I go in and I talk to companies, you know you'll almost always hear the same thing. Oh well, we have three access points that allow us from our IT network. They're highly monitored and and, and we're good. If you actually did an assessment, you know there was one actually retail company uh, that I worked with at one point. They made the same claim about into their financial their credit card processing network. Okay, you know we got three access points. They had thirty nine. Yikes. Uh, you know, and the same exact thing is happening with these OT, OT networks. They just don't know all, all the access points. And, and that's really where a lot of the threat intelligence comes in for, for what I'm doing now and what I've been doing in the, the past 10, 15 years of my career is uh, these organizations need to understand how the bad guys are attacking them. They need to get that threat intelligence. They need to understand, all right, here's how 
OT networks are being targeted. They're not being targeted by reverse engineering Siemens devices and, uh, and other things mm -hmm. like that. Okay. They're, they're being targeted by, you know, telnet ports and, RD, you know, open RDP uh, systems and by SMB shares and by all these, you know, tr very traditional attacks that have been out there for a while. Right. And so organizations need to know and understand how they're going to be attacked and targeted so that they can focus in on, on those things. Every little step hurt, you know, helps. Uh, I, I'm not expecting organizations overnight to be like, all right, we're going to layer on 40 things of security in, in, into our networks. Uh, but, you know, just doing one or two things is a really good start. What percentage of our critical infrastructure has sort of layered on one or two things to be more protected? Uh, well, so, and that gets into how you define critical infrastructure. You know, there's the 19 or 20 sure, or however yeah. many they, they define. I mean, keep it to oil, you know, gas, yeah, and so, electrical so, grid. Uh, you, you do that, and I think they've done really well on their, uh, and they're getting better on their IT networks because it's also a matter of protecting our intellectual property and, and the advancements that they've made. You know, there's been a lot of attacks against oil and gas and other kinds of uh, companies where they go in for bidding. Uh, there, there was a large bid in Brazil a, a few years ago that, about almost a decade ago now, where uh, they, they needed to develop new drilling technology uh, in addition to, to the bidding. And those companies were under cyber attacks uh, because they were trying to figure out, all right, what kind of drilling technology have these companies developed in order to get to the, these new drill sites and how much were they going to bid on it so that they could get underbid uh, in, in the whole process. And so I think most companies have done a better job at trying to fight back against those kinds of attacks in very traditional ways that, that a lot of other commercial companies have done. Uh, on the OT side, though, I still think that there's there's not much that that's being applied to those networks. Um, you know, simple anomaly detection and behavioral analysis, I think, would be perfect for those because okay. ABCD has to happen. Uh, so I'm just looking for anything other than ABCD All right. uh, on those networks. But um, I, I do think that there's a long way to go, but there's still a lot of, lot of hesitancy uh, for them to apply even any layer, even basic layers of, of security around there. Uh, and all they need to do is is read some of the you know modern threat intelligence, recent threat intelligence on how their their organizations are being targeted, and say, all right, how does that apply to my network? What what kind of you know access points am, am I offering in? So, Jonathan, we end every interview on a random question, but since we're here at Black Hat, we are curious to know how do you protect yourself. Uh, online or within the realm of cybersecurity. Uh, we, you know, we have all of these professionals and we talk about all of this technology and how it always should be protected. We want perspective on how you do it on a on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, uh, for my own personal information sure. and mobile devices. So having worked at the NSA and the government, I will say, raises your level of paranoia okay. uh, to, to a large degree. But it also brings you to this point where it's just like, almost like, you know, your information's out there. Okay. Uh, and so my general approach tends to be a, you know, an assumption that my information is out there. So what am I going to do now? You know, assuming okay. people have my credit card numbers, assuming people have, you know, my social security number and, and everything else like that, because the government has it. And I know people can break into the government very easily. So okay. you know, they, they have all that information on me. Uh, so I always operate with that thought of, all right, assuming somebody has a lot of this information, what can they do? You know, 
can I add in two-factor authentication and stuff like that, assuming people have my passwords? You know, what okay. kind of things can I do to secure my access to social media, to my banking, to other things that I, that I use on a regular basis uh, in a way that, you know, if my information is all out there, it doesn't matter. They still won't be able to get access to, to the things I have. Um, I also try, I, I very much, uh, I'm an engineer at heart, so I, I follow the KISS principle, the keep it simple, stupid. Okay. Um, every, time, every time I try to do something that involves security, I make sure that I can basically use it on my mom. Um, okay. You know, and so I, that, I, I do the same thing. That's a parameter that I use, yep. the mom test. Exactly. Uh, and, and it's funny because with a lot of these interviews, my mom listens, you know, hi mom, uh, to, to, <laughs> to a lot of my interviews. And I try to make sure I explain things in ways that maybe she can understand and, and do it. But uh, every time I, I go back home, I will implement, you know, I, I, I install them a, a mesh network, but I make sure that they have oh, wow. okay. you know, good security around it, that I make sure that it's limited. You know, you can only get access uh, to their network network if you're a known device and if anybody comes over to their network you know they have special guest access that's outside of where the rest of their devices are and, and things like that um, and so I just try to set things up to try and make it a, as simple as possible for them uh, but also you know once again leveraging all, all the things out there with the very basic assumption that all your information's out there what do you do now Okay. Hooking mom up with the mesh network. You're a good son. Yeah, exactly. good son. Uh, Jonathan, really appreciate you hopping aboard. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Jonathan for joining us. And Jen, short week, not a lot going on. Have you recovered yet? It took me like basically all of Sunday to recover, but I'm recovered. Nice. Yeah. I... Think that the rest of the the hacker world is it, it's been a quiet week for once. I I will say that it, it seems like everybody's kind of uh, you know sleeping off the the residual effects from Hacker Summer Camp. Do you have a favorite part or um, or talk from DefCon? So I myself was not at DefCon, but uh, my team was out there and. Um, they really enjoyed the Aviation Village. Mm -hmm. It looked like we have a really interesting story up on our website now talking about how, you know, not only was the Aviation Village there to sort of poke and prod at what goes into, you know, aviation and, and technology, but also it seems like the, the U.S. government used it to try to recruit hackers into their, their ranks. And look, we talk about the cybersecurity shortage all the time. Um, th th this is this is the way to do it, and you're not going to find better talent anywhere in the world than when everybody congregates to DefCon. So it was really interesting that not only did they actually use the Aviation Village just for you know tinkering with parts, there was a strong recruiting effort going on as well. So I was only there on Friday, but but always my favorite part is walking around to the different villages and seeing what's going on. What village did you uh, pop into? I was, I was I popped into aviation. Okay. Um, and I spent a little bit of time there. Um, I stopped by and saw um, the voting booths, you know, and just kind of and just kind of walked around, caught a couple talks. Uh, but again, I only spent like a half day there uh, before I had to go do something else. But always really interesting. Yeah. Always fun to people watch too. I, I I love watching the the personality that that comes with DefCon, and I definitely want to be able to spend more time there next year. 
But for this week, that will wrap it up. Thanks again, and we will be back next week. As always, stay curious. Stay curious.